Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you for giving up just a short bit of your week this week to discuss what I find to be one of the most interesting areas of public sector communication. Today, we have a, a very experienced guest, I think I would have to say, but someone who has ranged across all sorts of areas in government and is really leading the way in the technology, innovation, digital transformation space, and who she doesn't know uh, in this part of the world around this space and and the knowledge that we can draw down on over the next half an hour. um, It's really not worth knowing. She is a real superstar of the Australian digital scene. But before I introduce her, as we start each week, It's the definition of content communication. So content communication is a strategic, measurable and accountable business process that relies on the creation, curation and distribution of useful, relevant and consistent content. The purpose is to engage and inform a specific audience in order to achieve a desired citizen and or stakeholder action. So to my guest today, it's Liz Jakubowski, and I will declare an interest in here that Liz is a dear friend of mine, but she also has a wonderful background in government relations, strategic communications, policy de- uh, development, and also technology innovation. And she has held senior executive roles at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, New South Wales Health, NICTA, which was the National in. Uh, ICT Centre uh, for Innovation at, with the federal government. She's produced documentaries, t- technology pilots in media and health, and, and she is a real connector in this space. Um, she's been working at the a logistics knowledge hub Stone and Chalk with the Australian Internet Industry Association, the Committee for the Economic Development in Australia, and she has also helped establish the National Digital Careers Program to encourage school students into STEM careers. But at the moment, Liz is working at the CSIRO as part of the Data 61 team. And she has a great team supporting her there at the moment with the Ribbit platform, which is ribbit.net. So that's R-I-B-I-T.net. And the purpose of the Ribbit platform is to match university and TAFE students with digital skills to startups and to innovative businesses. And we, in fact, are the beneficiaries of that very matching process where we have one of our very talented uh, staff members who's just graduated with a computer science degree from the Australian National University. So thanks very much to Ribbit for that. But Liz joins me now. And Liz, thanks for joining us in Transition. Thank you so much, David. It's just fantastic to be here and, and what an amazing introduction. And what, But what an amazing career. You've really followed your nose over many, many years to find probably the most interesting pieces of the, the digital transformation innovation agenda. And when you've found yourself in these different places, you've created a massive amount of value. So it, you couldn't say it's been a planned career, could you? No, no, not at all. In fact, um, uh, I, I wouldn't have planned any of this, but um, I wouldn't have had it any other way. So I feel incredibly, incredibly lucky and grateful for the fact that uh, 
I've had such amazing opportunities to work with um, with great people and to do really really interesting work. And and you've um, worked you've worked very very at, at very senior levels. And one of the insights I, I maybe perhaps we we start with is that you've spent a lot of time talking to political officers. You've spent a lot of time up there trying to convince people about the benefits of being involved in particular um, programs or services or all sorts of different things over the years, whether it be with the ABC or or the health or in, in technology. What's your advice to people about being an effective operator on behalf of the bureaucracy in that political space? Uh, I think the main thing is just to get into their, their mindset. Uh, if you understand what um, what really most politicians want and whatever party they're from, they're, they're basically about uh, uh, making sure that uh, they're being responsive to their constituency. So if it's a minister, it's portfolio-based. If you're a um, uh, parliamentarian with an electorate, it's looking at after the needs of the electorate. So it's, it's really understanding how whatever you're communicating or um, trying to get up relates to their particular objective, and if you can get alignment there, then uh, that's that really increases your, your chance of making a successful connection and, and getting the outcome that uh, hopefully you and that politician wants. But how do you get their attention when we know that they are so busy and they have so many different people coming into their offices at all times of the day and night trying to capture that share of their attention? So I think it comes down to, to three things. Um, the first thing is timing. So so knowing uh, when the right time to go is is critical. Uh, if you do it too too early or too late, you're not going to be as effective than um, uh, getting it just right. And you can pick up what the right time is by, by the nuancing around a particular issue. Uh, obviously, you don't go and talk about budget issues, you know, the day after budget or a few months after budget. It really needs to be in the right uh, context. I think it's also about understanding, uh, apart from your own ideas uh, and yourself putting something forward, who else they're influenced by. So ensuring that uh, whatever you're putting forward is in alignment with a broader cohort of, of people who, that, that, who they listen to and, uh, and think about uh, getting advice from. And I think the, the last thing is to make sure that whatever you're presenting to them is clear in terms of not just what you want to do but how to do it. So let's obviously the timing's quite quite an obvious one where you've really got to understand how that's particular that time's working and I think that insight there around budget is is an obvious one that you really have to hit that um, you know the right time and be you know just astute I suppose and aware but in terms of finding out who else influences them who else they listen to how do you discover that Oh. Um. So I guess it's a 360 sort of approach. Uh, it's it's not that hard. It, it really is something that is very easily discoverable publicly. Um, it's a matter of uh, – so, you know, you take a particular policy issue and you look at who, who the key uh, stakeholders, thought leaders are around that policy issue and then you marry that with uh, who is uh, influential for that uh, polit- political um, office or um, individual politician, and it's really a matter of, I guess, just um, understanding that. I mean, it's, it's not dissimilar to, you know, if you've got if you've got a, a child at school who's having particular issues, you'd be talking obviously one to the principal, two to their teacher, 
three, maybe to some of their friends or the parents of some of their friends. So it's it's really just, you know, gathering all the information that's at your disposal and, and trying to make the best assessment of, of you know, how, how you deal with that. And when you get the opportunity to to present, you've spoken about the need for clarity. Is it important to have visuals or is it important to be short and to the point or to have a well-reasoned argument? What's the best way of getting the message across or does it in fact differ given the, the different uh, preferences of, of the politician that you're seeking to influence? I think 100% the absolute key thing is being genuine and I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all. I've been really, really lucky that all my life I've represented organisations and beliefs that, that I 100% subscribe to. So whatever it is that I've been able to communicate, whoever I've been able to communicate on behalf on or whatever the issue is, it's been in complete alignment with my own values. So uh, I've been very lucky from that respect. And I think if you are genuine about what you're putting forward to someone, it doesn't matter how many slides or, you know, if you don't have slides, it really doesn't matter. It's it's about uh, making that connection with that person and, and understanding whether they share that interest or they may be persuaded to your point of view. Um, so if you take that into a broader context, because I guess there are situations where people have to advocate on policy matters that um, they may not have complete alignment with, I guess it would be a matter of just uh, making sure that whatever it is that you're putting forward uh, from a dispassionate point of view, you're making the best case possible to make sure that uh, all the good arguments you can make for that case get up and are presented by you. Fantastic. Well, that's, that is superb advice. And I think people can take a lot from that because I think that's a, quite a nice strategic template that people can take away and consider as they shape up their next um, presentation that they need to make in terms of, you know, building support for a, you know, a particular policy idea or program or, or whatever it is. But when it moves from there and perhaps let's say that you have been successful in being able to uh, convince an audience to, to your uh, point of view, just how important is it that you then deliver um, on what it is that you promised that you would be able to deliver for that stakeholder? And how do you go about shaping up a communications program in support of of the well-won argument that you've put in place? Yeah, I think it's absolutely critical that you don't over-promise because uh, there's nothing worse than those expectations not being delivered. And it's really difficult because sometimes you're not in a position to actually uh, be able to ensure every or to uh, supervise every aspect of that delivery. So I think uh, what is good is if you uh, aren't able to do that, that you communicate that really clearly and effectively as soon as possible. Um, it's really important that uh, whoever it is that you're, you've got uh, that relationship with, who's got that expectation that they're aware of whatever problems um, you are that you're having in that delivery and that you're able to resolve it. I mean, it may not always be the case, but I think most people understand that not everything comes out perfectly every time. So having that uh, trust relationship underneath it gives you some flexibility around what you, you know, end up being able to do 
And I think at, at the end of the day, it's yeah, it's it's all based on the relationships that you you have and your reputation for being able to deliver what you say you will do. Yeah, and again, you you seem to be suggesting that you know the old truism that. Uh, you know, they can handle bad news and, you know, elected leaders can handle bad news, but the, what they can't handle is surprises. Yeah, look, I, I guess so. I guess that's uh, that's true. And I think there's also a tendency because as as funds become more and more competitive that people overpromise or they, um, they don't value uh, whatever it is that they're providing enough in order to get a particular contract or – in order to uh, get buy-in from someone, and then it creates a lot of pressure on on themselves and everyone around them to to try and fulfil that. So uh, you know, it's all it's all very much a balance, isn't it, David? Do you do you enjoy that sort of work? Do you, do you enjoy that advocacy work? Because obviously you ha- you are often tied up with things that you that you like, but it it's a very sort of grueling, tough sort of work, isn't it? Because it does take time to build that trust. Uh, to be honest, I really do enjoy it a lot. Uh, it's it's not even work for me. Yeah. For me, particularly because, as I said before, I've been incredibly lucky to always represent organisations that I'm 100% um, in alignment with in terms of their mission and their values. Uh, and a lot of them have been public sector, of course. But uh, for me, it's it doesn't even feel like work, and I feel like it's uh, you know it's such a privilege to to be able to yeah. uh, to communicate on behalf of an organisation and, and get an outcome that they want. So uh, yeah, no, it's it's pretty good. <laughs> no, but you've and you have had you know massive impact. You know, I go back to the days of you know the public record where you saw you know well well before other people the the potential to broadcast live the goings on not just in the the chambers of the parliament but you know what was going on around parliament in a lot of the you know committee uh, hearings and a lot of the door stops and a lot of the you know what would largely be considered as second and third tier sort of content sources, but you had enough insight to say, well, hang on, this is going to be value to a particular audience. And it was many, many years ago that you put that together. So just take us through perhaps even, but let's go back to that example. What, how did you see that before everybody else that the, the internet was going to be able to deliver for much more narrower audiences than it seeks to serve than the old broadcast media did? Oh, I don't know if I saw it before everyone else, David. No, not at all. Uh, I think what was, uh, I guess I was lucky to be in the position of was having an opportunity to actually do something about it. I'm sure plenty of people see these things all the time, but unlike me, not many, not all of them have had the opportunities I've had to be able to get in front of someone and say, hey, you know, let's join two and two together. You want to do this. We want to do this. How about we get together and, and try and pilot this and so on. So again, it's it's all, all been um, because of you know, the, the luck that I've had in, in having these opportunities. But getting back to uh, the days of the public record and the early internet, uh, there was a fantastic team of people uh, like, you know, Colin Griffith and Anna Finlayson uh, and others who, who I worked with uh, at the time that um, all shared this vision. And it was a matter of being able to have all of those people that, well, small group of people largely um, who I was working with, but everyone was 
uh, equally responsible in in getting up the public record and uh, you know really doing something that was quite pioneering at the time. And it's nice to reflect back on that time and, and look to see that we did you know the first web forums, the first webcasts in Australia, uh, and that this was really the start of of something, a, a new era that we could already see was going to really change things fundamentally and forever. So uh, it's great. It's great to reflect on that, but it's equally great right now to be looking at you know what we can be doing for um, you know right now and what we can be doing for for the um, the next sort of generation of people coming up and how we can um, make things um, work better for them which is what my focus is right now yeah now we'll come to that in a minute because I am I, I really do want to know you know what is going on in the engine room there in terms of digital transformation because you do sit very much at the heart of this innovation agenda within the uh, Australian context around education and digital transformation. But just before we jump onto that, um, you, you pointed to something there which I'd, I'm also very interested in, or, and this is this notion of leadership. Um, you have inspired wonderful loyalty and commitments and performance out of the people around you. What are the secrets of high performance and you being able to get the best out of the people who work for you? Gee, um, <laughs> that's very nice of you to say. Uh, oh, wow, I feel quite humbled um, by you saying that. Uh, look, I think it's. I think leadership can come from anywhere, and I think shared leadership is always a really good thing, particularly when you have outstanding individuals that you're working with in a in a team, and. Uh, I think also a lot of women probably do it differently because it's not that important to be seen as being the leader, but the greater importance is to make sure that you get the right outcomes. But uh, I'm I'm really lucky right now to be working with a, a team of really clever, um, a diverse team of uh, young and older people. In fact, I think we worked out the other day there's uh, a 35-year age gap between the <laughs> oldest and the youngest person on the team, the youngest person being 19 years old. Uh, and it's that sort of diversity that's that's really fantastic. I, I feel that it's important that people feel empowered uh, right from the word go, that you trust people to, to do the job and um, you build up their confidence. I had a really nice bit of feedback from one of the people on my team early this year where uh, he started working from me for me and uh, I, we did a sort of a, hey, how's it going? You know, you've been working with me for six months. And he said, look, um, great. I, I just never realised that I'd be given so much responsibility. And I went, oh, do you, do you feel like it's too much? <laughs> <laughs> Am I expecting too much of you? And he said, no, 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 it's it's just, you know, very few people. And this, this person is a little bit older, not the 19-year-old, but sort of in the late 20s category. And he said, no, 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 look, you know, I've, I've been working for a few years now and no one sort of just, you know, enabled me and, and sort of pushed me out the door and expected me to do all these things. And um, he said, no, it's a good thing. It's it's great to, to have that sort of support and confidence. So I guess that's my style and that – works for me because um, and hopefully it works for my team because that's obviously who I am. I'm I think everyone just needs to be authentic to their particular style and it certainly wouldn't work for everyone. Uh, I'm sure that if I was working in a portfolio like 
uh, I don't know, you know, some government department that is really, really structured and where people expect a lot of guidance uh, and structure, then that wouldn't work. But because I've been, again, lucky enough to work with really, really clever people who are self-initiating themselves and um, very capable, then, you know, I've been able to work like that. So, again, it's just been a reflection back on the the wonderful people that I've been able to work with. But then, but then how how do you then manage that that risk? Because obviously it's not an accident that people are not only empowered to be able to do do things, but you've got to make sure that they've got the appropriate skills and they've got the appropriate attitude. So you must do a fair bit of work, I would have thought, in terms of making sure that you've got the right people, which then gives you the confidence to say, well, you know, I think I've got the right person to do the job and now I expect them to do the job? Uh, I think I'm just lucky that I'm, I'm getting long in the tooth, David. You know, <laughs> it's really what it comes down to. Uh, it's it's just experience and instinct. Well, you, mu- you must know this, that uh, you just get an instinct for, for people that are going to be the right fit, not only for, for you but for your team. And it doesn't really take that much time. It, it's basically uh, just – Getting a getting a feel once once you meet a person. I mean, maybe the the meeting the meeting of the person takes the the the, the most the longest bit of time. But once you've got that that short list of people or that group of people, I think you instinctively know who's going to work or not. And um, well, can I turn it back on to you? I mean, is, has your experience been that you you know you pick the right people? You get an instinct for for people. Yeah, I'm I'm a bit with you. I certainly I've got the processes to to make sure that I'm going through what I'm looking for, and there's a certain sort of baseline skills that need to be there or experience that needs to go there. But ultimately, yeah, I think you know your intuitive sense has to be activated to to make those decisions. I think you, I, I think you do have to rely on that often uh, in all sorts of different cases where either you. You know, you don't take on a project, for example, because you get a feeling. Now, you might not know, but you get that sense of, actually, I don't think I want to be here. And you've got to really, I think you've really got to be in tune with your gut and, and often trust it uh, and, 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 and go with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. It's, it's a gut thing. And I think that that's increasingly what uh, I rely on these days. And, you know, I've, you know, spent sort of a lot of my, um, bedtime reading, you know, looking at those, um, you know, MBAs and how to be a better employer and a better communicator and all those sorts of things for, you know, the last 20 odd years or so. And then you sort of throw all that away and just think, well, you know, what, what have you learned? And it's, it's the gut instinct thing that, that really, I think, um, at the end of the day, um, gets you the right, the right sort of, um, people that you really click with. So, ladies and gentlemen, so ends part one of our discussion with Liz Jakubowski, and she is a wonderful leader of the technology movement in government and the public sector in Australia, and I have known and admired her for such a long time, and I think you get that sense just in listening uh, to Liz about the authenticity and the character and the belief, and I think some of that wisdom around leadership and how she leads and how she goes about it 
um, is is great stuff and things that we can take away and think about in our everyday. So as I say, the end of part one, next week we will have part two. So make sure you join us next week because next week we get into the meat of this project that she's working on now, which is called Ribbit, which is all about connecting government and business to students, this great sort of challenge that we have to make sure that the education for the students that we are teaching at these times of such big change, that the education that they're getting and the opportunities that they're getting to integrate their learning uh, with work uh, is of value to them so as that they can become more valuable and they can have, you know, the, the many new and uh, interesting jobs that are promised by um, the changes in technology that are coming our way. So make sure you join us again next week. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. For more, visit us at contentgroup.com.au.